Hello everyone and welcome to the September 19th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer who prevailed in a WCAB 132A claim filed by an employee cannot use that finding to obtain a summary judgment against the same worker who also filed a discrimination-based FIHA case. The injured worker, Gurdip Kaur, worked for Foster Farms for nearly 15 years and was last employed as a yield monitor at Foster Farms' Cherry Avenue plant. In 2013, Cower slipped and broke her wrist at work while wearing company-issued rubber boots. She also slipped prior to the injury because of these boots and requested new boots that she said were never supplied. Cower is originally from India and believed that she and other Indian employees at the plant frequently encountered difficulties in obtaining work-related gear because they were Indians. After surgery to her broken wrist, she had work restrictions, but was sent back to her regular position as a yield monitor with no modifications to her duties. And then she complained that she needed light duty given the restrictions on using her left hand. But she claims her request was never appropriately addressed by Foster Farms. Then in 2016, Foster Farms announced it would undergo a restructuring that would affect its Cherry and Belgavia chicken processing plants. The Cherry plant would lose about 500 positions, while the Belgravia plant would gain 300. Cower was eventually terminated after numerous efforts to identify and train her for a job she could do at the Belgravia plant. In 2017, Cower filed a lawsuit against Foster Poultry Farms. The first five causes of action arose under FIHA, and the sixth was uh, retaliation in violation of the labor code. Prior to filing this civil action, she filed a 132A petition against Foster Farms with the WCAB, which she lost after a three-day trial. Foster Farms then moved for summary judgment in the civil case, claiming all of Cower's disability-related claims were barred by the doctrine of res judicata and collateral estoppel, based on the WCAB's prior ruling. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of Foster Farms, but the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case of Cower v. Foster Poultry Farms, LLC. The issue on appeal was whether the decision by the WCAB denying Cower's 132A claim has a res judicata or collateral estoppel effect on the claims at issue in the civil, civil FIHA case. Cower's petition before the WCAB alleged that Foster Farms discriminated against her in retribution for her claim of injury and her filing of her workers' compensation claim for benefits. As to her disability discrimination claim, the Court of Appeal noted that Labor Code Section 132A prescribes a relatively narrow range of discriminatory conduct by employers, while FIHA targets a much broader range of discriminatory conduct and imposes affirmative duties on employers as to disabled employees. 
and failure to provide reasonable accommodation and failure to engage in a good faith interactive process involve entirely different inquiries and issues than did her claims under 132A. And they encompass a whole range of affirmative duties and other requirements applicable to the employer. Thus, Cowher's 132A claim does not have preclusive effect on her disability-related FEHA claims, and the trial court erroneously granted summary adjudication in favor of Foster Farms. And in another case, the Court of Appeal ruled that employers must set a date certain for the end of an emergency leave before they have good cause to terminate employment. The plaintiff, Rena Johar, was a home improvement commissioned salesperson for Success Water Systems when she left work to care for a terminally ill relative, and she was gone for about a week. Upon her return, the employer told her business was slow and gave her no new sales appointments. Johar eventually made a claim for unemployment benefits with the EDD, telling the EDD she lost her job due to a temporary layoff. But the employer denied laying her off, but conceded that she left with her supervisor's approval. But the employer advised the EDD that Johar's Failure to provide a return date or otherwise communicate with her supervisor while she was away amounted to a voluntary quit. According to Johar, she was hired with the understanding that she might need to take leaves from time to time to care for her grandmother, and she had two approved leaves of absences for this purpose before this controversy. The EDD accepted the employer's position and found Johar ineligible for unemployment benefits, ordered reimbursement of benefits improperly paid, and imposed a penalty for willful misrepresentation in seeking benefits. And an administrative law judge sustained the EDD's ruling, and the California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board affirmed, finding that Johar abandoned her job. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the published case of Johar versus California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board. It found that there was no evidence that the employer had an established leave of absence policy, which Johar knew or should have known, and then simply ignored. And to the extent there was an informal leave protocol established by the party's prior conduct, Johar followed it. The dispositive question in this case is whether, having voluntarily left work for good cause, Johar manifested an intention to abandon her job while she was gone. The law on what is known as anticipatory breach of contract occurs when one contracting party positively repudiates the contract by acts or statements indicating that she will not or cannot substantially perform essential terms of the contract. And anticipatory breach must appear only with the clearest terms of repudiation of the obligations of the contract. The Court of Appeal said that here the employer argued that Johar's intention to quit may be inferred by her silence in the face of post-departure requests for a specific return date. But 
That is not enough to show a repudiation of future contractual duties. The emails in this case show that Johar did eventually respond, saying she would get back to the employer when the emergency ended. Thus, the evidence is insufficient to show a positive repudiation in the clearest of terms as required by law. And now our crime report. Multiple felony charges have been filed against Gemma Maher, who is the office administrator of San Francisco-based Kulinane Plastering for insurance and tax fraud. Her employers, Dennis Kulinane, owner of Kulinane Plastering, and Jeremiah Kulinane, owner of Kulinane Construction, have warrants outstanding for these charges, and they are still at large. Maher and her employers are alleged to have concealed about $5.8 million in unreported payroll to avoid paying insurance premiums and payroll taxes. The alleged fraud was discovered after a Kulane plastering employee was seriously injured while working on a job site in 2019. The three defendants allegedly concealed the employee's existence and injury from State Compensation Insurance Fund, for almost a year. When Maher finally disclosed the injury to Skiff, she made multiple alleged <clears throat> misrepresentations about the worker's employment history and injury to further the fraud. The resulting investigation revealed that the three illegally concealed the injured worker's wages from Skiff and the Employment Development Department and allegedly submitted fraudulent employee payroll information to both of them which artificially lowered their workers' compensation premiums and tax contributions. This resulted in an estimated $270,000 loss to the state fund and an estimated loss to the EDD of over $300,000 in unpaid payroll taxes and over $1.5 million in unpaid taxes and penalties. The National Insurance Crime Bureau announced that it is strengthening its long-standing relationship with the California Department of Insurance. California currently ranks third in the nation for vehicle theft per 100,000 people, and the California Department of Insurance is committed to reducing crime through its enforcement actions targeting insurance fraud. California is experiencing some of the highest crime rates as crime continues to increase across the U.S., including the highest vehicle theft numbers since 2008, staggering catalytic converter thefts, and fraud exceeding $300 billion nationwide each year. And therefore, the Insurance Crime Bureau said California is the perfect place to address these issues. The NICB president and CEO met with the California Department of Insurance Assistant Chief on Monday in San Diego to discuss their continued partnership and ways to combat insurance fraud and crime. CDI and NICB have worked together hand-in-hand since 1992, and the Crime Bureau uh, values the intelligence and support that the NICB special agents offer during an investigation. Together, they will investigate all areas of insurance fraud, including auto fraud, staged accidents, healthcare fraud, workers' compensation, and property investigations. The NICB also announced it is strengthening its long-standing relationship with the California Highway Patrol 
and they are focusing on ways to combat these crimes. The Crime Bureau is also strengthening its long-standing relationship with the San Diego District Attorney's Office. The NICB president and the San Diego County District Attorney met on Wednesday to discuss their partnership and future collaborations as they work to investigate and prosecute offenders. The Crime Bureau said it is grateful for its partnership with the San Diego District Attorney's Office since after an investigation it looks to the District Attorney to prosecute these criminals. Governor Gavin Newsom has signed Senate Bill 1242 into law. This bill is the Senate Insurance Committee's biannual omnibus bill, which includes several changes that are non-controversial, technical, or otherwise classified as code cleanup. Prior to passage of this law, an insurer was required to send a form and information about a suspected fraudulent claim to the fraud division of the Department of Insurance within 60 days after determination by the insurance that the claim appeared to be fraudulent. But the new law extends the time to make this report to within 60 days after the completion of an investigation. The changes to this law seem only to set timing for filing information with the Department of Insurance rather than any other substantive change to the obligations of the claim administrators. The language is added to Section 1872.4 of the Insurance Code. And the new law includes a requirement that agents and brokers who suspect or know a fraudulent application for insurance is being made to report that fact to California Department of Insurance Fraud Division if the application has not yet been submitted to an insurance company or to an insurer's special investigative unit if the application has been submitted to the insurance company. This language appears in Section 1872.41 of the Insurance Code. And the new law clarifies that these reports do not subject the agent or broker to civil liability as long as the agent or broker is acting in good faith. And after March 1, 2023, the 12-hour ethics course that is required in connection with the pre-licensing education of insurance agents and the three-hour ethics course that is required for license renewal must include one hour of study on insurance fraud. These provisions were added to Section 1749 of the Insurance Code. In essence, the new law will bring insurance and agent insurance agents up to speed in terms of fraudulent activity by the insurer during the policy application process. In workers' compensation, this is typically premium fraud, where the insured incorrectly reports the number or classification of employees to reduce the premium to be paid. During the legislative process, there was no opposition voiced by stakeholders to this new law. And in regulatory news, Gavin Newsom also signed AB 2848, which amended Labor Code Section 4610 to extend the time limits for a DWC study of possible changes to the workers' compensation utilization review process. The current study was first created by law passed in 2016 
and required the DWC Administrative Director to contract with an outside independent research organization to evaluate and report on the impact of the provision of medical treatment within the first 30 days after a claim was filed. The report was to be completed by January 1, 2020. But according to the author of the new law, the current period of evaluation was not sufficient to capture the effect of workers' compensation claims filed after January 1, 2019. This new law, which continues the study, will help gather more information on the workers' compensation system so that the state can better understand workers' use of medical treatment in the workers' comp system. However, this bill was intended to be later amended to become a larger workers' compensation reform package, raising permanent disability benefits, minimizing delays associated with medical treatment requests, and reducing frictional costs within the workers' comp system. But those proposed amendments apparently did not take place. The California Labor Federation was a co-sponsor of the law, and there was no opposition to the proposed law in the legislative record. In summary, a proposed law that was aimed at increasing benefits to injured workers ended up simply extending the time limits for an earlier study that was specified back in 2016. Otherwise, there are no substantive changes that require the attention of claims administrators in California. Cal-OSHA just posted guidance on safety in the workplace to protect from monkeypox infections. This guidance applies to workplaces covered by the aerosol transmissible diseases standard, including health care facilities, medical transport, police, public health services, and more. But employers not covered by the section on the aerosol standard are not specifically discussed in this guidance, but they still must protect their employees under the Injury and Illness Prevention Program, Sanitation Requirements, and other laws and regulations. Monkeypox spreads primarily by close or direct contact, but it also can become airborne. Thus, it is an aerosol transmissible disease covered by Cal-OSHA's Aerosol Transmissible Disease Standard, which contains mandatory requirements that certain employers must follow to protect their employees. For example, regulations require employers to implement a written program to prevent or reduce the transmission of aerosol transmissible diseases specific to the workplace and operations. They must provide and ensure the use of respiratory protection, ensure that personal protective equipment is provided and used by employees exposed to persons with or suspected to have monkeypox or to linens or surfaces that may contain the virus. They must implement written procedures for exposure incidents and report the exposure to the local health officer. Calosha's aerosol transmissible disease standard has differing requirements for three different types of employers and details about the requirements for each start on page 3 of the Cal-OSHA monkeypox guidance. Monkeypox spreads primarily by close or direct contact with infectious rashes, lesions, scabs, or body fluids. 
It can also spread through touching material used by a person with monkeypox that haven't been cleaned, such as clothing, towels, and bedding. In addition to lesions on the skin, lesions may be located in the mouth or throat, and research is underway to further understand the role of respiratory fluids, droplets, and particles in the transmission of the disease. Infection with MPX may start with symptoms similar to the flu, including fever, low energy, swollen lymph nodes, and general body aches, although some do not have these symptoms. After the fever starts, the person can develop a rash or lesions which will develop through several stages, including scabs, before healing. They can look like pimples or blisters and may be painful and itchy, and the illness typically lasts two to four weeks. There has been rapid rise in cases of MPX in many regions since May 2022, including California. On August 1st, Governor Newsom issued a statewide proclamation of emergency due to monkeypox, and on August 4th, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services declared the outbreak to be a public health emergency. And in medical news, the term permanent disability is frequently used in legal definitions, medical and rehabilitation terminology, insurance coverage, and government compensation programs. But an episodic disability is characterized by periods and degrees of wellness and disability that fluctuates over time. A growing percentage of people are affected by what is known as episodic disability. Many people suffer from episodic disabilities and the unexpected nature of their illness makes it difficult for them to achieve long-term goals, find work, maintain a stable income, or get social assistance. Moreover, these phases of health and disability are unpredictable. Consequently, a person may enter and exit the labor force with unpredictability. According to Statistics Canada survey report that studied 6.2 million Canadians with disabilities, only 39% experienced conventional continuous limitations, while 61% experienced some type of episodic disability. In 2015, the Episodic Disabilities Employment Network updated its list of episodic conditions which is continuously expanding over time. The diseases and conditions that are potential causes of episodic disabilities include include some that are involved in workers' compensation, such as arthritis, chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and other diseases. In California workers' compensation, the distinction between episodic and permanent disabilities can make a major difference in long-term benefit awards. This is especially significant when consideration is given to claims of kite case disability, first created by the case of Athens Administrators versus WCAB in 2013. In kite disability cases, 
Total disability can be awarded when a vocational rehabilitation expert claims an injured worker is unable to compete on the open labor market at all, presumably forever. But such a conclusion should consider the episodic nature of some disabilities. Rehabilitation involves any services or providers who address or prevent disability experienced by people living with chronic episodic illnesses. Rehabilitation should be disability-focused, goal-oriented, person-centered, focused on function and tailored to an individual's goals, abilities, and interests. The bulk of the literature on episodic disabilities and rehabilitation has been related to those suffering with HIV. And currently, the issue of episodic disabilities is resurfacing for those with long COVID. Perhaps it is now prudent to consider concepts learned from the growing body of literature on episodic disability when evaluating a claim of disability based on the KITE decision. According to Fair Health's monthly telehealth re regional tracker, after two months of growth, national telehealth utilization fell 3.7% from 5.4% of medical claims in May to 5.2% in June. Declines occurred in the Northeast and South, but there was an increase in telehealth utilization in the West and no change in the Midwest. In June 2022, COVID-19 maintained the same ranking among the top five telehealth diagnoses that it held in May, both nationally and in every U.S. Census region. It ranked at number two nationally in, and in every region but the South, where it ranked number three, and certain other diagnoses shifted in the rankings in June 2022. In the West, psychologists fell from 4th to 5th place in the list of top 5 telehealth specialties, switching place with primary care non-physician. In June 2022, the rankings of the top 5 telehealth procedure codes did not change nationally or in any region. The number one telehealth procedure code nationally and in every region remained one hour of psychotherapy. Nationally, the median charge amount for this service when rendered by telehealth was $180, and the median allowed amount was $111. The Hartford is extending its partnership with the Yale program in addiction medicine to provide a newly developed training on addiction, pain management, and stigma to more medical providers who treat injured workers. The Hartford launched the partnership with Yale School of Medicine following a record level of U.S. overdose deaths in 2021. To address the opioid crisis, the company has also supported federal funding for opioid education and treatment programs and advocated for federal and state reforms, such as the adoption of robust medication formularies, mandatory physician and provider education, restrictions on unneeded opioid prescriptions, and improved drug monitoring programs. Yale's program in addiction medicine is internationally recognized and built on 30 years of pioneering research, 
and Yale's model programs have been replicated nationally and internationally. The Yale program works to expand access to and improve the effectiveness of prevention treatment and harm reduction services for people with unhealthy substance use and those with addiction. The program operates across four key pillars, clinical practice, research, education, and policy. The Hartford's chief medical officer served as a consultant to the Yale team to ensure the curriculum focuses on improving workers' ability to do their job, preventing chronic pain development through the appropriate management of acute pain, and enabling a safe return to work following a workplace injury. The Yale team conducted an in-depth virtual training session for 25 clinicians this June, and participants were highly satisfied with the training, some saying it was comprehensive and interactive. Additionally, a knowledge gained from the pre- and post-test knowledge assessment scores was noted among the participants. In the coming year, the Yale team will refine and update the curriculum based on pilot participation feedback, conduct additional virtual and in-person training sessions, and develop train-the-trainer resources so that more instructors can conduct the training. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.